Today's episode is with John Young. For those of you in the running and triathlon community, you might know him a little better as The Hammer. (laughs) And we talk about where that awesome nickname comes from in the episode. So John Young is the first person with dwarfism to complete an Ironman triathlon. He's also raced Boston Marathon and many other. I think he said he's done over 50 triathlons and however many running races. And so he is really a fun guy. We had one of the fastest hours together that I think I've ever had with anyone on a podcast. It was just really enlightening, a lot of fun. And we're looking forward to next month. We are going to be at Race Mania in Boston on March 25th. And this is 2018 for those of you who might be listening in 2019. Um, So March 25th, I am speaking. John is on a panel and we're at some point going to high five each other and say hi. So hope any of you in the Boston, New England area can make the trip and and see the hammer. Come see me. It's going to be a great time. Hope you all enjoyed this episode with the hammer, John. Welcome to the same 24 hours podcast with Meredith Atwood. We all have the same 24 hours each day, and it's what we do with those hours that makes all the difference between our health, happiness, and success. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Same 24 Hours podcast. I'm your host, Meredith Atwood. Today's guest is the John Young. Hi, John. Hi, Meredith. How are you? <laughs> you like the the in front of it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's official. You're the John Young. So let's talk. I'm going to tell everyone who you are before, you know, in the introduction, but let's talk a little bit about who you are and what the hammer means. Sure. So where do you come from? Where were you born? Um, I was born in Toronto, um, up in Canada, uh, lived there until, uh, I got married in 95. My wife, Sue is from Minnesota. We, we were there from 95 until 99 and moved to Hong Kong. I had, um, I started as a high school teacher in 1990 and then in 1999, I kind of wanted to change. And so I got hired to teach over at a school in Hong Kong and taught there for four years and, our son, Owen, who's now 15, he was born when we lived over there. And then in 2003, we moved to Massachusetts, and we've been living here ever since then. And I'm, like I said, I'm a high school teacher. I've done a bit of coaching, coached basketball for a few, for a few years, coached swimming for the last uh, nine or 11 years. And, and that's, you know, that's kind of me in a pretty quick little nutshell. <laughs> so what kind of, what do you teach? I teach high school math this year. Oh. I've got uh, I've got honors pre-calculus and then statistics. Oh my gosh. My kids are nine and 10 and I, their math skills are already far beyond me. I am not mathy. Well, it's, you know, <laughs> I, I honestly think that has a lot to do with, and I, I truly believe that like almost anything in this world, I, I don't think people are born necessarily good at math or bad at math. I think that you probably had some teachers back in elementary school that just didn't light the fire and so you didn't think it was really worthwhile and um and 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 so unfortunately it's not something that that you really maybe liked and 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 I think those kinds of things unfortunately get set to said to a lot of people oh you're not a math person or you're not an English person and unfortunately people tend to believe it and so they kind of you know spend the rest of their lives thinking well I guess that's just not me and 
and like you said, your 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 children right now probably have have more math ability <laughs> than you will. But I think that's you know I think that's unfortunately just because a lot of people are told things like that, and especially and I, and I don't like to say this, but I think years ago people were told, especially if they were girls, well, math's not for girls. You shouldn't yeah. do that. And and unfortunately, I th- I think the world is changing, and I know I. I try not to use those words in my classroom. And, and like I said, I teach one of the honors classes. And in all three of my honors classes, I have far more girls than boys. Well, I remember the exact moment I decided math was not for me. It was in fourth grade. It was long division. I was up at the board with my hands on the chalkboard doing a problem. And the teacher was screaming at me <sighs> that she could not believe that I was so stupid. Oh boy! I mean, like I, I said, remember yeah. like it was yesterday, yep. and so I was like, "Well, I'm yep. never going to amount to anything with this." And yeah, yep. I was the same thing with my. Um, I was the same thing in third grade with my handwriting. I really struggled with cursive writing, and I think that had to do with my smaller hands and and holding a pen properly. And and I had the same thing. I had a teacher saying, "You're never going to have neat handwriting. You're what a mess you are." And I was the last one in, in class to get a pen, and I always remembered that. So oh man. What yep. A bummer. All right. So you yep. said your small hands. Let's yep. talk about that. What about your small hands? Well, <laughs> I, I'm not trying to pretend that I'm the president of the United States or anything talking about <laughs> hand size. But no, I, I'm, I was born with achondroplasia, which is the most common form of short stature. And um, so it, it's a type of dwarfism. Uh, lots of different words that people use to describe people with short stature. So uh, some people say little person, person of short stature, or person with dwarfism. And so I've been like this my whole life. And, you know, I started out, you know, a little smaller than all my friends. And then as as we grew and people hit puberty, I didn't kind of get that growth spurt like everyone else did. And I stand about four foot four. Um and uh, and and that's it. So, but like I said, it's smaller hands, smaller arms and legs. My torso is average size, so I I have a type of dwarfism that's called disproportionate because my body proportions aren't the same as as the average population. So, were your did you have parents that were short statured or? No, my parents were average sized. Okay. And in fact, most people with dwarfism are actually born to people with that are both average size and it's due to a mutation and so one of my parents I don't know who mom or dad uh, had a had a genetic uh, you know late they like the same mutation or fault but they had a switch in one of the chromosomes and and that's what caused my dwarfism so what were some of the challenges that you experienced just growing up well I grew up in a family where all of my siblings were average size and not this really doesn't have anything to do with my short stature, but I also grew up in a foster home. I was given up when I was two weeks old, and my my birth mother was quite young when I was born and felt that she couldn't take care of me, and so she put me into foster care uh, with the hopes that I would maybe be adopted. I actually wasn't adopted, but I lived in the same foster home my whole childhood, which was very lucky. Wow. Uh, but the environment, I think, is the biggest challenge, the fact that nothing in the world is made for me. So, you know, all the furniture in our home, the cupboards, everything was all for average-sized people. And so, you know, it was basically either I sat around the house and let people do things for me or I learned to figure them out on my own. And luckily, when I think I was probably about, oh, I don't know, six or seven, maybe a little bit younger – I remember riding on the subway in Toronto with my mother, and we saw a, a, an, an adult 
person with dwarfism. And up until then, except for television, I'd never talked to a person like face-to-face with dwarfism. I'd only seen them on TV. And so my mom asked if we could talk for a few minutes. And so this guy you know, took some time out of his day and we chatted on the subway platform. And the one thing I remember him saying was my mom said, like, if there's one piece of advice you can give me as a parent with somebody with dwarfism, what would that be? And he said, treat him like all your other kids. Don't do anything special. Don't, don't give him any breaks because of the fact that he's short. Let him figure it out. And so basically that's kind of the way I was raised. If I couldn't reach something, I got a chair and I climbed up and I got it. You know, it was okay to ask for help, but not, not like to kind of get out of my, what was my responsibility. So I had to make my bed. I had to do help with the laundry. I had to do everything that all my siblings had to do. And you could stand on the counters. And I was allowed to stand on the couch. <laughs> that actually got me into trouble in elementary school because I remember, um, again, the same third grade teacher. So I, I'm not going to name her because yeah. her and I really, her and I never really got along very well. But I remember her. She thought it was really cool to kind of let me get up on the chair and do stuff. And then one day she came into the classroom and I was like running along the counters <laughs> and she like screamed and flipped out. And it's like, well, you told me I could climb on the chair. I don't really see the difference. But. <laughs> But we didn't really see eye to eye. So, but, so how but, tall like were you're four foot four now? How tall were you as a third grader? I was pro- I was probably maybe like a head shorter than everybody else. Okay. So that's kind of you know when I look at my elementary school pictures, I can see you know I was probably at somebody's shoulder or a little you know a little bit lower maybe, but probably about a head shorter. Okay, so because I don't have any real rough, I don't know how tall my kids are. I should know how tall they are, but four how, foot. How old? How old are they again? They're nine and ten. So oh, they'll, that's they'll, third be, they'll be taller than me. They'll okay. probably be a little bit taller than I am. Okay. Very cool. Um, so what were some of the ways that, you, you know, you had to overcome challenges? You had to figure out how to stand on chairs or climb on countertops. Yep. What was something that you kind of troubleshot as a kid that you were super proud of that you kind of accomplished or, or got made got through that was kind of funny? I, I'm, I think I was, I was always a really good swimmer. And, and I learned I learned how to swim in a program in Toronto that was run by a guy named Gus Ryder. Now, Gus Ryder was, is a very famous Canadian, but the reason he's famous is he coached Marilyn Bell, who was the first woman to swim across Lake Ontario. Ah. And, and in fact, she was the first person. She wasn't just the first woman. She was the first person to swim across the lake. And it was a very, you know, it's a pretty long distance across the lake. I think it was 38 miles or something. And so she swam across Lake Ontario and and he ran a special program back when I was a kid that was called a program for crippled children because um, they you know they didn't use any euphemisms back then it was just they called what you were what you were and so yeah. I went I went I was in this swimming program and I they taught me how to swim and they were really good like don't bail him out unless he's drowning let him figure <laughs> it out and so I was really good at swimming underwater and I could hold my breath a lot and so I remember when I got to summer camp with other kids. I was probably one of the better swimmers. And so that was one place physically where at least at a young age with, with people, some people not being really good at swimming or not really confident, I could kind of shine. And so I really liked that. And, and then I could also joke and say, well, maybe I was good at hide and seek too. Maybe I could find <laughs> a, a spot to hide better than everybody else. But Somewhere where you said um, you went to this, you went to a doctor's appointment and this was when, this was like maybe 10 or 12 years ago and you went to a doctor's appointment and the scale came in a little heavier than you thought. And you told <laughs> the doctor that the, the scale was broken and this yep. sort of 
developed into your, I guess, second life really in, in fitness. So let's talk about that a little bit and how that happened. Sure. Basically, after we moved back from Hong Kong to North America, um, I was not very active. And, and even though, you know, living in Hong Kong, we didn't have a car, we had to, you know, we moved around, like we had to get around and everything. That was fine. But when we got back to North America, my life became very sedentary very quickly. And what I hadn't realized was over the years, I'd started to um, acquire what I later found out to be was sleep apnea. And so what happened was one afternoon I was, I came home from work. I was absolutely exhausted and I was talking to my wife at the kitchen counter and she, we we're in the middle of a conversation and I remember opening my eyes and all she said to me was, did you have a nice nap? <laughs> and, I, and I said, what do you mean? She said, right in the middle of talking, you fell asleep. Oh my gosh. Sitting at the counter, like sitting at the, at the table. And I thought, okay, you know, and she goes, this is serious. Like I'm worried. And because what had been happening was at nighttime, I was, I was actually gasping for breath. And so I would stop breathing at night and have these episodes. And she'd been kind of telling me like, you should go to the doctor. And I finally said, okay. So I went to the doctor and, and, you know, being four foot four, um, you know, we obviously have to be a little conscious about our weight. And I remember stepping on the scale and it said 195 pounds. Wow. And I thought, I immediately said, your scale is broken. And he said, no, it's not. This what did you weigh the last time you got on the scale? Probably like low 170s. Okay. And so I thought, this is nuts. And so they, they sent me for a sleep study and I got, I was diagnosed with severe sleep apnea. And so I was immediately prescribed a machine, a CPAP machine, which I still use today. And the only reason I still use it today is because I don't snore. And so my wife appreciates the <laughs> fact that it stops my snoring. Yeah. And, and so, you know, as soon as I was prescribed that machine and started sleeping properly, I kind of started getting my energy back. So this was probably around 2006 or so. Um, got back into swimming, you know, really had, I'd like swimming when I was younger, as I mentioned, and, and that was great. And then, um, and like you said, this really is a second life because none of this, I'd never done any of this in back in Canada, except a little bit of swimming. But what happened was, um, one of the students at the school where I teach says, Hey, let's have a bike to school day. And my school is located about 10 miles from where I work. And so I borrowed my wife's bike. And I said, I'm going to bike to school today. Now, I kind of cheated, and I biked to the train station and then, <laughs> and then put the bike on the train. <laughs> so I basically, I cycled maybe four miles. Yeah, but that's no joke for no, your first and, day. Exactly. And I thought that was fun. And then I did that maybe once or twice more. And then one Friday afternoon, it was a gorgeous day. I, again, taken the train to work on my bike with the bike. And I said, I'm going to bike all the way home. And so I cycled the 10 miles home. And I was exhausted, but I was invigorated, and I thought it was fun. So I, I started looking at other opportunities to ride my bike. And then early, early in 2009, in the winter, somebody sent me a video, and it was a video of Dick and Rick Hoyt doing the Ironman triathlon. And I remember watching that video, and I literally started to bawl my eyes out. Like I was just – I was seeing this father-son relationship kind of unfolding – and I thought, what a great relationship between a father and his son. And I thought, well, here was my son at this point. Probably, you know, at this point, he would have been about seven, maybe six years old. 
And he was really starting to struggle at elementary school because Owen, like myself and my wife, also has a chondroplasia. And so he was just at the point in his life when his friends started to get taller than he was mm-hmm. and he was noticeably a little slower than they were. And and so, you know, they weren't picking him for sports and he was maybe getting picked last in gym class. He was, you know, he's always coming last in races. And, you know, as a dad, you're always like, oh, just try your best. That's all that matters. But you can only say that so many times to a kid. And they just, it's just like, you know, it's like watching the Peanuts cartoons yeah. where the adults are speaking, you know, wah, wah, wah. It's just right. It's and just is worse. it harder for you to say that to him? I mean, to it, just, you know, because you've got so much more life behind it and experience. It, it was hard to say it because I knew what he was going to start facing. And so then when I thought about this triathlon thing, I thought, okay, here's what I can do. I can sign up for a triathlon, go out there and give it a try and have him watch and maybe see me come in last place more than likely and and see that I may be happy with how I did and think, hey, you know, here's my dad like demonstrating that it's okay to do your best even if you're not going to win. Mm. And so, so that was the whole reason behind me doing my first race back in 2009. I had no preconceived ideas that I would do anymore. You know, I really thought I would do this one race and then that would be it. And I did it and I absolutely loved it. And I did come in dead last and, and, you know, I wasn't hours behind everybody. It was just a sprint race and, you know, but, but he said to me, Hey dad, did you win? And I said, no, I didn't. And he said, well, why are you so happy? And I just said, cause I did my best and I had a lot of fun. And I could just see the kind of the wheels churning in his head and, you know, people coming up to me saying, hey, great job, you know, good race. And then I just thought, I think I might like to try this again. And so yeah. I signed up just a few weeks later and I did another sprint and then I did another sprint. And so in 2009, I ended up doing four different sprint triathlons. And the thing with us, with, with us, when I say us, with people with dwarfism, we're actually told or we used to be told you shouldn't run. It's not good for your back because we have a stenosis in our lower spine, which basically is where the spinal column at the bottom of your spine with you or with average people, it actually gets wider. With us, it gets narrower. Hmm. And so we have the same amount of spinal cord shoved into a smaller area. So there's more pressure. Wow. So, so they used to say, don't run. Don't do anything where you're banging and, and moving a lot. Like swimming is okay, slicking is okay, but you shouldn't run. But what I soon noticed is I actually started to have less problems with my back running than I do sitting or standing for long periods of time. Hmm. And, and so I started like the next year I did an Olympic distance race. And then I thought, you know, maybe I could try a half marathon. And, and then that's kind of where it started to go. And I just, I started to race more and enjoy it more. And my wife just started to say, oh no, what is this monster (laughs) we've created? And then he. She's like, give me my bike back. Oh, I got my own bike. Trust me. That's exactly what happened. She got her bike back and then I got another one. And, and, and since I've since got another one, cause I think that's what it is. It's N plus one, right? It's right. Always, whatever exactly. you have plus one more. Right. And, and so, you know, that's, that's kind of where I am now. And I've done, you know, f- about, I think I've done at least 50 triathlons, um, uh, 10 half Ironmans and, and, uh, I did Ironman Maryland in, in, 2016 and 2017 um i didn't finish it in 2017 but i mean i it's just it's it's been this whirlwind 
of marathons and everything else. And I'm absolutely, you know, I'm 52 years old now and I see no end in sight in terms of how much of this I'm going to keep doing. That's awesome. I want to get into some of that, but I want to rewind just a minute. How did your son, I mean, he saw you finish and, you know, any seven-year-old, seven or eight-year-old wants to know if mom or dad won. I mean, my kids still used to ask me and I'm like, yep. the answer is still no, mom uh -huh. still is not winning. Uh -huh. um, but how did that help him? I mean, it does. It has helped my children tremendously to see a healthy mom out there slugging it out, you know, especially when times are tough. I think that's like, that's it. I've, I've seen him now go out and, and participate in sports. And, and like I talked about the swimming, like when I was really young, I found out that I was good at swimming. He's starting to find out what he's good at. And he likes to, he's now, you know, he's running cross country. And though he's not the fastest, he, he doesn't focus on beating other people. He focuses on setting his own times. And he's like, okay, like when he did his first race, he goes, I want to break 35 minutes. And then by the end of the season, last season, he said, I want to break 30 minutes. Like that's much faster than I am. He's, he's already head and shoulders faster than I am as a runner. But I think he's just, he doesn't care how he measures up against other people. And the best part about it is, I think, I think every race I've seen him run this year in cross country, he has not been the last finisher, but he doesn't care about that. Like he doesn't, he's never come up to me and say, Hey dad, I wasn't last. Mm. And I think, you know, for a 15 year old boy to not care about that, I think is, he's already won in my mind. Like he's, his life is set in terms of wanting to do what's best for him and not care about how he measures against other people. Well, and I think you deserve so much credit for that. I mean, so many parents and, and not necessarily people with dwarfism, but just parents in general, I think, are, are just not setting the example for their children because they don't know how to, you know, it's, it's hard. Life is hard and we don't know how to get out of these ruts we're in. And so I, I think that's just fabulous that you know, because he's, he's not coming to that on his own, I don't think. I mean, he's watching you do it. I think, you know, I, 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 I'm happy about that. And I, and I just, you know, I know part of me wants to, I don't want to necessarily be last and I want to beat <laughs> right. other people. But I always find that when I'm racing, especially longer distance races, like half marathons or marathons, the moment I start seeing another runner and I start thinking to myself, I can be faster than that person, that's when my race falls apart. And I yeah. really, it happens every single time. And then I find when I don't worry about that person and they, I start to get into their head, exactly the same thing happens because <laughs> they see me and they see these little legs and they're like, I should be faster than that guy. My legs are so much longer than he is. And, and then before they know it, they're exhausted because they're worried about me. And I think, you know, I, I'm glad that that's kind of worked for him, but it was never... You know, it, it's never like, hey, Owen, watch me. You know, look what I do. Yeah. And I, and I think as a parent, you know, it has to kind of, he has to come to that aha moment on his own. And I'm glad he did. But I never once said, you know, you need to do this or you need to race or, you, you know, he tried one triathlon and did not like it. He, mm -hmm. did it he was much younger. And I don't think he's, he doesn't like open water swimming at all. So, you know, I don't know if that'll change. But, um, I don't care. I like, I'm happy that he loves running and yeah. that's, that's the best part because, you know, like me, he, he has very few problems with his back. He rarely complains about sore legs and, 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 you know, we are not the norm when it comes to people with dwarfism. Like I have not had a single 
surgery related to my body that had to do with dwarfism. And yet other people are not as, and I can, you know, I, I like to use the word lucky or, or I consider myself very blessed because, you know, I've gone through my life relatively healthy and, 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 and I'm happy for that. How do you think your life would have been different if you hadn't had that wake up call back in 2000 and was it six or nine? Yep. Well, it was 2006, I think, when I first went to the doctor. Yeah. I, I honestly and truthfully think I would probably be dead. And I don't mean that. I don't say that like in kind of like nonchalantly. Right. Because when I went for the initial sleep study, like they told me my pulse ox level was like 84. Like that's, you're talking organ shutdown pretty soon. Like it's, oh. you know, it's not good. And I could have had a stroke very easily. And so I'm thankful my wife encouraged me to go and I'm thankful I listened to her because I really truthfully think if I had, if I had just stayed on that path, I probably would be in pretty rough shape, if not dead by now. Wow. So how, how long did you go without breathing? That's always like the fascinating part of the, the sleep study. At well, they, night. Yeah. All they said to me was in one, in one hour, I had 110 episodes, which basically meant I stopped breathing almost twice a minute. Oh my goodness. For an entire hour. Like they literally had to wake me up to put me on the machine that night. Cause they were worried that I, you know, this is bad. Like he needs this right now. Is uh, sleep apnea more common in people with dwarfism? It is if you don't take care of yourself mm-hmm. health-wise because it's, you know, it's all to do with how, you know, how much weight you kind of carry in your chest and, and that. And so if you're overweight, um, certain, you know, certain parts of our body aren't as, as, as wide or as open as everybody else's. And so I think, I think you know, I hear about a lot of people with dwarfism having apnea. And, and I, I'm, I'm glad with the fact that the moment I used the machine, I was, I was fine. Like some people hate the machine and will never use it and maybe have to have an operation to help, you know, repair some stuff. But, but the machine has worked out quite well for me. And so I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm extremely happy, but I do hear about it often in, in our community. So your nickname is the hammer. Where did this come from? It was kind of, um, it's, it's an interesting story. I ran the Boston Marathon in 2013, and um, I unfortunately wasn't able to finish because of the, the, the bombing at the finish line. And my wife and son actually had been waiting at the finish line for me when that happened. And so they were across the street from, from the explosions and were not harmed physically, but obviously witnessed a lot of stuff that I didn't, ha- I didn't see because I was about a mile or so from the finish line. And so the next year, I was given entry to run in 2014. And so we talked about it for, you know, the early spring leading up to the, to the race. And I, I said, you know, if you guys are able, I really would like you to go to the finish line again. And they talked about it. And, you know, there was initial apprehension because of what had happened. And, and they basically both realized that it would probably be a very safe location this year. It would be a lot of security. And so they both decided to, again, go back to the finish line to wait for me. And so in 2014, I got to the starting line and it was a beautiful day, but unfortunately I didn't realize this, but I actually had contracted the flu two days earlier. And so I got really sick about mile seven or eight and I got all the way to mile 10 to downtown Natick and I, and I was, I, I was, I was nauseous and sick and went into the medical tent and um, I said, I'm going to try and, and run in a few minutes. And I actually fell asleep in the medical tent right away. So they they woke me up and they said, the bus is here to take you back to the finish line. 
um, are you going to withdraw? And I said, I guess I'm going to have to. This is not looking good. And so I got on the bus and I rode back to the finish line and I actually picked up a phone and I said, I, I phoned Sue and she said, we're waiting for you. We're waiting for you. And I said, I'm sorry, I've got some really bad news, but I'm, I'm not going to be able to finish this year. And she said, why? And I explained that I was sick and, and I'm sorry and I'll, I'll get there as soon as I can. And so when I got to the finish line, you know, I got off the bus, I found them at the finish line. I was really upset because I had wanted to replace what was a really terrible day the year before with some happy memories and say, okay, here's our new, you know, let's, let's make this a positive day and turn in what was a tragic day into something good. So here I was failing in that attempt and I was literally crying with my son and, son and my wife there. And my son, who at that time was 11, looked at me just straight in the eye and he said, you know, dad, sometimes you're the hammer and sometimes you're the nail. Today, you're the nail. <laughs> oh, that's funny. And I, yeah. And I just thought, oh my God. I said, where did you hear that? He goes, I read it in a book. And I went, well, that's exactly what I am. And so I remember posting that on the internet, like the story. And right away, somebody just said, well, I guess next time you're going to have to be the hammer. And that's it. It just Oh, stuck. I love it. See, I it's never actually, knew that. It's the first yeah. time I, I learned that story. Yeah. Well, it's actually painted on my bike. Like it, I, when I got my, my new bike two years ago, made by a, a company here in, in Massachusetts, Seven Cycles. They said, you can have any color scheme you want. And he said, you can even paint something on it. And I said, I definitely want to have it say, be the hammer. And so that's kind of, you know, thanks to Owen, thanks to my son, that's kind of become my catchphrase. And, you know, I'll get people writing to me or sending me notes on Facebook. Oh, I had a terrible race on the weekend and things were looking bad. And then I just said, hey, you know, sometimes you're the hammer, sometimes you're the nail. And I thought about you and it, you know, even though I had a crummy race, I still finished. So thanks. And so that kind of inspiration or that kind of, you know, those stories I hear from other athletes, I think are really are helpful because they kind of make me realize that it's, it's not, I think the part about me that I want to motivate people, I hope anyways, kind of my drive and my kind of my desire to just keep doing better. And it's, it's not the fact that I'm this little person running. It's just the fact that, that there's something else inside of me that kind of keeps me going. So what is the one message message that you would like everyone to know? Um, I think when, like when somebody says to me, I could never do a marathon, my response always is, it's because you don't want to. Mm. And, they said, and they said, no, no. I, I, and I said, no, listen, seriously. If you want to do it, you can do it. And I, you know, there's a catchphrase that I, I've kind of used as well along with the other, along with be the hammer. And it's your will has to be stronger than your won't. Yeah. Like there has to be something inside of you that tells you that this is important. And if it, if it's there and you prepare and, and, and practice and, and get out there, you'll be able to do it regardless of what other people say. And I, I also try and take the motivation of, I was told a lot when I was younger, you can't do that, you're too small. You can't do that, you're too short. And I think what, I think what pleases me more than anything, though I'm really happy about our son and, and, and the fact that, that he's doing this means the world to me, I think on the other side of it, I'm also pleased when I get letters and comments from parents of people with dwarfism or even young adults with dwarfism who say, you know, I, I brought my son to PE class and the PE teacher was saying, oh, we can't have him do that. That's too dangerous. We can't have him do that. He might fall. We can't have him do that. He might get hurt. And then the parents say, oh, well, why don't you watch this video of this guy with dwarfism doing an Ironman? <laughs> and the teachers are just kind of mouth wide open. Oh, 
I think maybe we need to change our ideas. And I think that's to me is, you know, I'm glad that the world is seeing that whatever shell you have or whatever body you have, that's just part of what makes you you. And, you know, with some adaptations or some training or some smart coaching, you probably can pretty much do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it. That's true. I mean, I hear that all the time. Oh, I could never do an Ironman. I could never do X, Y, and Z. And it really is. It comes down to, no, you don't want to do it. And and, and that's fine because <laughs> it's not really sane to do these things. No. But it's true. It's true. It's all about what, what we want and what we can set our set our mind to. So how much do you attribute sort of attitude and determination t- to getting you as far as you've gotten? I think it's probably for me anyway, I think it's 80%. I really mm-hmm. do. You know, and I, and I, I kick myself because I, I know I probably should be a little bit leaner than I am. And I don't say lighter because I, I'm really, I don't pay attention to what the scale says. I pay attention to how my body feels and I know I should be probably a little bit leaner, but I'm also 52 and I enjoy life and I don't, you know, I'm not, I'm not one to say I'm going to go on this diet or I'm going to totally eliminate this from my food. You know, I still like to enjoy what I eat, but I'm more conscious. And so it, though it is physical, I think far more of it is, is mental. And, and I think that, you know, and I don't have an undeniable drive to do everything because, you know, I look, for example, when I did the Ironman this year in Maryland, like I did it in 2016 when we had all that terrible weather and the, the run course was flooded and we had to go through mud and everything and the swim had been canceled. And I finished that year and I was really proud of what I did. And, and then I ran it again just this last October and the weather was absolutely perfect. And, and I had a, you know, a, a swim that I probably wish was a little bit faster and my cycle, my ride was pretty good on the bike. And then I got on the run and I just, once it got dark and something in my head was just starting to say, you really need to stop. And I don't know why, you know, I kept thinking I was going to be able to think of something that was going to get those thoughts out of my head. But for some reason at mile 16, I said, that's enough. And I stopped. And so it's not like I've got this will that is, you know, unbreakable. Something inside of me said, you know, I promised my wife, I said I would not get to a point where, where I was either endangering myself or where I wasn't enjoying it. And, and I was really the, the self-talk, the, the, the thing they're telling me to stop was stronger. And so at mile 16, I said, that's it. And so I, I didn't finish. And I'm mad at myself for doing it, but I also, it just wasn't in it for that day. And, and I'm, I walk away saying I did the best I could. So what is some advice you have for the DNF? I mean, people ask me all the time, you know, what do you, what do you, what's next? Or what do you say to yourself when, when you DNF? I mean, it's, it's a hard process, even if you do it for the right reasons. It is. And I think what I, what I did was I took a couple of days after that race and I said, okay, here's where you need to decide. Are you going to reload and go for another Ironman to show that, you know, here's this person with dwarfism that can do, you know, I, I call myself an Ironman because of the race I did in 2016. I, I fully take that, uh, but I did not do 140.6 miles. And so I still have to do that at some point in my life. But I thought that 2018 is not the year for that. And so I thought what would be better for me is to try and come up with a new goal. And so this year I'm doing something different and I'm putting kind of Ironman on the back burner and I'm still going to race 
uh, the New York City Triathlon because I've done that for seven years in a row, and I don't want to break that streak. <laughs> and I, it's a fun race. It's a really exciting race. But starting in April with the Boston Marathon, I'm going to attempt to do 12 marathons in a year. Oh, my goodness. So I'm going to try and do one a month, on average, one a month, starting with Boston and then ending next year with Boston again because I actually make it by one day. So it's it's April 16th this year, and then in 2019, it'll be April 15th. So I'll make it by one day. And I've mapped out – I think I've got nine of my marathons like kind of semi-officially booked and a three more I'm still kind of working with. But that – I just – I said in my mind, I need something fresh. I need to kind of put Iron Man away – yeah. And and just for my own well-being because I just I I really think that if I just got right back into it again this year, I I don't know if I would have been in a really good place mentally and and I think this has brought me to a place where I'm excited and I'm invigorated and um you know a lot of these races have reached out to me and you know I've got comped into a few races and and it's it's an exciting thing. I'm going to do the Toronto Marathon, which is my hometown, and I'm all excited to run down Young Street in Toronto, where I grew up and where I went to high school, and it's going to be a really fun. It's going to be a really fun race. It's really important to kind of recover from those those Ironman <laughs> events when you just you know you have to really listen to yourself. I mean, I always tell my athletes that your why has to be extremely strong to get you through the training and the mental demands that and family demands that Ironman has. And mm-hmm. so I think it's really amazing when you you know and you can realize, hey, this is not the year for it. But 12 marathons, that's that's really really exciting. So how do you train for your marathons? Do you have a coach? I do have a coach, Brian Brian Hammond. He coaches the Achilles athletes out of New York City and and him and I have been working together for a few years and he's kind of come up with one really important thing for me and when I was training by myself when I did my first few marathons I thought I would just do like everyone else and the three weeks before I would kind of do my big long run 18 or 20 miles and for me to run 18 miles is like that's a good four four and a half hours and so I did these long runs And then I couldn't do anything for two and a half days. I was absolutely exhausted and my body was aching and sore. And what he realized is he feels that, that it'd be better for me to run like an ultra marathoner. And if I've got to do an 18 mile run, he says, do like do 12 or 13 or 14 on Saturday and then do the other five or six the next day. Mm -hmm. And I've started doing that. And that, that actually took me from the New York marathon. I did a 6:35, and then the next year I did a 5:57. Wow! And my best marathon now is a 5:50, and so it's really I think it's just my recovery is so much faster. Um, I can I can exercise the next day, and um, and it, I just I just feel fresh. Like I don't mm-hmm. I'm sorry, not fresh, but I mean I don't feel so beat up. And yeah. I think that's the that's the big thing. And so, you know, we've talked about once I once I rate, race Boston on the 16th of April, the the Toronto Marathon is three weeks later, and then I'm doing the Vermont Marathon three weeks after that. And so what he said is basically you'll do your marathon, you'll re- rest for a couple of days, get on the bike, bike a little bit, and then just basically, you know, bring your mileage up until you know a few days before that next marathon, and and I 
probably won't have any long runs anymore. I'm just going to basically just build up to each marathon yeah. and, and run it the best I can. And, you know, n- knock on wood, I don't get injured. I think that's obviously the biggest concern. Right. Um, but, but I'm, you know, I'm not, I think the only one I'm actually going to race is probably that first Boston, like the one coming up and the other ones, I'm just going to run them to finish and have a good time and smile and high five and, and, and just really enjoy each one. Yeah. My coach had me do, we, I forget what he called them, but like split runs where I would do, you know, 10 miles in the morning and 10 miles in the evening. Um, yep. cause my body can't handle it either. I mean, uh-huh. I just, I'm, I'm an adult onset runner. So I sure. started so late in life yeah. and, yep. um, then when I do run a lot of miles, I tend to get stress fractures uh-huh. no matter how hard I try. Yep. Um, so yeah, it, it's amazing. You can still get, you know, 20 miles in a 24 hour period and yep. it, you feel so much better. I yeah. mean, yeah. yeah. Like yes, cool. like on Saturday, I, I, you know, I live just north of Boston, and so on Saturday, I went out with a with a friend of mine, and we did we did twelve twelve miles on the on the marathon course, uh, and then yesterday in the early afternoon, I I went out and and I did another four miles, and so there's sixteen miles, and you know I'm I'm feeling fine. That's awesome. So let's talk a little bit about your first Ironman. And I know you mentioned the torrential rains and all of that. So walk us through the whole sort of race day and um, to the finish line, because I'd love to hear that story. Well, basically, it it was Ironman Maryland. I want to talk just a minute about Jerry Boyle, who's the race director for Ironman Maryland. Before I was deciding on what race to do i reached out to three different iron man races i i i reached out reached out to maryland and, and two others and i'm not going to mention what the other two others were but it wasn't a problem it's just that when i went onto facebook and said you know here are the races i want to do you know the other two race directors were like hey yeah sure but jerry just he really he immediately contacted me and said like we really are excited about you doing this race and we really want to do everything we can to help you. And so he was so proactive in making sure that my experience was going to be great and never once kind of expressed any doubt about somebody like me racing in Maryland. And uh, the community was terrific. And and so Jerry Boyle, like I said, he is top notch. And so I, I just kind of want to put that out there about him. But when I got to Maryland, it, it had been raining for days leading up to the race. And so most of the area was really quite wet. And the course is in a marshy area in a nature preserve. And that's where the bike course is. And they actually had part of the bike course was underwater as well. And so things were looking really kind of dire leading up to the race. Uh, but the community in Cambridge, Maryland was terrific. They were so, you know, they were so welcoming to all of the athletes. And, and, and that part of it was terrific. But we got up race morning, and we'd actually already heard that they were going to be shortening the bike course because it was flooded in, in parts of the course out in the preserve. And so we, at that point, we were told the, the bike would probably be shortened by around 10 miles. And so, you know, here we were getting ready. So I went out there race morning, and there was actually a flooded area leading into transition. So we had to walk through water to get into transition. Um we got into transition, you know, checked my bike, got my wetsuit on. We were all waiting by the water. The water was pretty choppy. They said, okay, let's delay the start for a few minutes. And so they delayed the start. And then they made the announcement that the swim was going to be canceled, that they were worried about safety. And what had happened was they put the kayakers out in the water and all of the kayakers were ha- having a hard time staying upright. 
and, mm. and they, they were rocking around and the stand-up paddle boarders were like they, they couldn't even get out into the water they were literally falling off the paddle boards just trying to get out and so if the water safety people aren't going to be out there <laughs> right you what's, need them <laughs> you can't really and you know there were a lot of people saying oh you know you're being wimps this is you know this is what iron man's all about and and i'm like you know listen i i would have done whatever they said but but they were worried about safety and so they canceled the swim and and that's fine so immediately i'm like okay well this isn't the iron man that i dreamed about but i've tried to spend my whole life controlling what i can control and worrying about what i can control and trying to ignore or at least not spend time worrying about things that are out of my control that's what i was going to ask you like because i i bet it just becomes crazy on race day when that announcement is made it was and you know they said okay listen Everyone, we're going to give you, I think it was a half an hour or something, and then we're going to start everybody by bib number in order as a time trial start. Well, wouldn't you know it, but I actually had the lowest bib number. My bib number was 11. Oh. So, so, so I got to be the first person off the bike. So for a couple of minutes, I was leading Ironman Maryland before somebody passed me. <laughs> That's awesome. It was. It was really cool. But, you know, the bike, the bike was great. You know, it was, it's, it was two loops of this, you know, kind of marshy area, very windy. But, you know, I honestly think my smaller bike and smaller profile, I, I don't want to say it's an advantage, but I don't think the wind affects me as much. So, right. you know, my smaller wheels, I, I've done the math and it takes me approximately 35% more revolutions to go the same distance as somebody else on like a 27 inch wheel. So obviously there's more work required, but you know, it's, I, I, I deal with what I can deal with and I use the body that I have and I can't change anything. So, so I let's just, talk about your bike, your sure. bike. So you have, what size wheels are those? They're 20 inch wheels. Okay. So and then how is your bike customized? It's, um, it's a custom frame done by seven cycles. It's a titanium frame in the, the, and with carbon as well. Um, seven cycles out of Watertown basically designed the bike and um and i've got head wheels so carbon wheels um and you know um profile design aero bars and it's a great machine and i was really blessed with the fact that you know i i reached out again i kind of reached out to seven different bike manufacturers and said hey i want to be the first person with dwarfism to do an ironman immediately seven cycles got back to me and said let's let's discuss this let's see what we can do and so they, you know, they didn't give me a free bike, but they certainly gave me a, a really good deal in terms of pricing. But here's kind of the icing on the cake. I was not, you know, I was talking to my coach and he said, hey, maybe we can do some fundraising. Um, you know, it might be a good idea. You know, we can do something in New York City. And I've got some friends who probably would like to maybe have a cyclothon or something and, and I'll go to a cycling studio and, and we could raise some money to pay for your bike. And I said, well, that's a great idea. And then one evening when I posted on Facebook that, seven was making my bike one evening i get this message from a woman that i've never met before and she says hey john my name's debbie i live in in um in california and my my niece is really good friends with your wife and i said what, what are you talking about and i found out that her niece and my wife who grew up in the midwest they they both have dwarfism and and so my wife, my niece Cassie used to know your wife Sue when they were kids, and and what a neat connection. And I said, oh, that is really neat. And she said, tell me about this Iron Man thing you're doing. And I explained what I was doing, and she said, well, my son Jason, he's a triathlete, and he's in fact going to Kona to race in Kona. And I said, well, that's amazing. 
And she said, well, listen, my husband and I, we we like to put money where we think it's useful, and we really want to buy your bike for you. Oh, wow. And I initially said, no, I can't do this. And I just said, I, I don't know who you are. I really appreciate the gesture, but I, I really think that that's, it's just not it's, I don't think it's appropriate. And, and though I appreciate your help, I don't really know if I can accept it. And she was really, really frank with me. And she said, listen, this bike is not for you. This bike is for every other child with dwarfism who's ever been told you can't do that. They need to see you out there. Whether or not you finish, I don't care, but they need to see you out there racing. So this bike isn't for you. It's for all of them, so please accept it. And I, like, I was, I was floored. I was, you know, I started getting very emotional, and and I took some time to think about it. But I, I accepted her gracious gift, and and because of her, like, I'm, I'm sure I probably would have been able to figure out a way to get the bike, but she sure made it a lot easier. My eyes are leaking, John. <laughs> yeah, it was. That's it's so a, sweet. it's a pretty amazing story, and I, wow. you know. When I run these marathons next year, this Debbie has since moved to Arizona, and one of the races I hope to do is the Rock and Roll Marathon in Arizona because I want to meet her in person because I haven't had a chance to to meet this lovely person and and thank her. You know, it, you know, I've thanked her other ways, but I want to give her a big hug and and just let her know that what she did was you know it was really special and I've never taken it for granted either. I mean, tri bikes are expensive for an average sized person, but the yep. customization yep. I mean, yeah, that's a lot. It was it's more expensive than the the used car that we have. So that's yeah. <laughs> I'll just put I'll just put it that way. But it's you know, I take care of it and, and I love it and, and even though I'm not doing an Iron Man this year, I'm still gonna use it and, and bike with it and, and hopes that, you know, I'll get back to Iron Man next year. We'll see. But I mean it's it's what it is. But that, that bike has been a it's been a godsend. Yeah. So back to we were talking about the bike course. Mm-hmm. So every you have to pedal thirty five percent further than yep. anyone else to yep. get the same job done. Yep, that doesn't seem very fair. It's what it is. Like I, 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 I understand that, and I, I don't. <laughs> You're like I know it's not fair. It isn't fair, but I mean it's what it is, and I don't right. want. I don't want there to be a special rule for me and a special rule for somebody else. Like if I can't finish in 17 hours, then that's the way it is. Right. Or I'll, or I'll do another Ironman distance race where they don't keep track of time. Cause I, I know there's other ones out there that, that they're, you know, it's not a 17 hour cutoff and that's okay. But I mean, the fact that I got out there and did it and you know, when I, when I got off the, the bike was great and I got off the bike and I really thought to myself, how am I going to run this 26 miles now? Like I'm exhausted. And so I, you know, I got off the bike and I started running and it's a very flat course where the, where the run course is and there are, and, and it's a looped course. You do a number of kind of these windy back and forth loops four, four or six times. And so you see a lot of the same people, which is nice. It's nice to kind of, it's nice for family to be there and, and see you more than once. But when I, when I did the run, the first run out and I started running back, I was passing other athletes as they were going the other way, and they said, oh, just just be careful. There's going to be a little bit of water on the course in a minute. And they said, what are you talking about? And they said, oh, there's a little bit of water on the road. And I literally went around the corner, and the road was absolutely flooded. And for me, I basically had to walk through water or run through water that was up to my crotch. Oh, my goodness. So for other people, it was up to their knees at the deepest point. But for me, it was, and so I was, I was literally laughing. It was that deep. Like, Did you what, ever think to just get down and swim? 
Oh, some people did. But I was actually worried what g- scuzzy stuff because this is, you <laughs> know, this true. is that's this straight is water. Making, this is backwater from the yeah. sewer system. I don't know what's oh. there. Oh, that's so, true. You know, I don't know. But I, I know I, and I, you know, I saw some people taking off their shoes and socks and then putting them back on. I said, no, I'm just going to, I'm going to keep everything on and hopefully not get too many blisters. And, and I ran it. And, and then when we went through transition, it was all muddy. So we had to run through mud. And, and so it ended up turning out to be almost like one of these Spartan races. It was so bizarre. Yeah. Well, I think what's so amazing, I mean, even though you guys had a canceled swim, I mean, you would have been within the time cutoff. Yeah. I, I mean, think you, I, yeah, I finished I, 14 yeah. hours and 20 minutes. So I think I would have been. Yeah. I mean, and, and not that that matters. You, you did, nope. what, you did the race that you did that nope. you were given on race day, but I always nope. like to say that, you know, cause I've had a couple athletes who have had the cut swims and I'm like, look, it's a, you know, two hour and 10, two hour, yep. 20 minute cutoff. And you, yep. you know, you add two hours and 20 minutes plus transition and you, there's your time. Like you would have yep. made it. And I yep. think that's, that's always good information. I mean, yep. uh, you know, anyway, the, um, the, neat, the, the neatest thing for me though, I want to kind of just, I want to go to the, like to the finish line. Cause that yeah. to me is my coach actually made it down to the race. And so I got to see Brian a number of times on the, on the course. And he saw me when I was, I, I, I probably had about a mile and a half left in the run and it was dark and there were, you know, there were still runners on the course, but it was pretty dark around 10, 10, 15 in the evening. And I remember he said to me, as I was kind of, he said, listen, he goes, John, no matter what happens, you're only ever going to have one Ironman finish. Or sorry, you're only going to have one first Ironman finish. And so he goes, whatever happens, you have to remember this day and, and, and make it worthwhile. So when he, when he left, I, you know, when he kind of parted my way and I, and I kept, I started to run and I was actually running pretty good and, and I immediately started getting very emotional. And I think what started to kind of wash over me was the thought of every single person that ever doubted me and said, you can't do that. Or every person that teased me when I was younger and, and used a word that people with dwarfism can't stand. And the, the, that word is midget. Like you get called that when you're a little kid, you get strangers saying that to you, you know, if they see you on the street. Um, and, and it's, it's a hurtful word. And, and I thought of all those people in my life that said that. And all I, I literally was yelling. And I remember just yelling, watch me now, mm. watch me now, watch me now. And I, and I remember just turning that corner and then going down to the finisher shoot. And I never knew this was going to happen. But when I, when I down the shoot and I kind of crossed the finish line and I looked and there was my son and my wife, they'd both been invited into the finisher shoot because where they were standing on the other side of the barricade, they couldn't see because the barricades were too high. Oh. And so the race director had seen them and said, you know, John's going to be finishing soon. Why don't you come around? And so my son got to give me my finisher's medal. Oh, and that, that's awesome. Yeah, that to me was, you know, that was it. And Sue and Owen, they were both there. And I got to hug them and share that moment with them. And, and you know, I may have another Ironman finish. And it might even be 140.6 miles. But I don't think anything is ever going to top the, top that finish line. I think you're right. And, and your coach was right to pull you aside and let you know to savor that moment because it is so true. <laughs> Um, so you mentioned as you were coming down the, the finisher shoot, watch me now. And I know a lot of what you say is we have to control what we can control and not worrying about what other people say, yep. but there is so much satisfaction 
and and doing what people say you can't. Oh, that's 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 it. And it's and it's not a matter of rubbing it in their face, but it's just a matter of showing. And, and in my opinion, it's showing younger people, younger kids that that there's there's there are a lot of people in your life that are going to doubt you. And and rather than beating yourself up and listening to them, use it as fuel to kind of keep you going. I, I, I laugh about a moment that happened when I was running. I was running the New Bedford Half Marathon a year and a half ago, and I I went it's I went by this area where there was some young families watching, and as I ran by the the crowd, this young kid yells out, "Mom, mom, look at the fat little man!" And I immediately turned around. And I said, "I'm not fat." <laughs> <laughs> and the best part was how the mother reacted because the mother immediately said, well, he's running a lot faster than your dad ever will. <laughs> and I just turned to her and kind of gave her a thumbs up and I kept going. Oh but, my goodness. You know, ki- kids need to see, you know, where I run, where I, where I live now, I get lots of people honking horns and waving and yelling out their window, go hammer, you know, and, and, and that is, is nice. And I, and it, and I appreciate the fact that people know me where I live, but I also know that there's still a lot of people out there that kind of, unfortunately being short statured is still in the eyes of some people. It, it's okay to make jokes about it. And, and it really bothers me. But like I said, I can't control what they say, but I can certainly, like I said, hopefully use that as fuel to kind of keep going. So how has, I mean, I know in this day and age, we're talking a lot about bullying and you being a teacher. I know you've probably seen a lot more than, than we have, but what kind of, I guess, just kind of talk about what you've been through and, and how you think what you're doing is sort of helping awareness with bullying for children and, and also adults. Adults are vicious too. Well, I think it's just that I think the, the most common denominator in my mind to someone who's a bully is the fact that I think they feel a lot of like they they really center more on their weaknesses and so they're they're kind of they're they're worried about the way people perceive them and maybe they're worried about some of their own bad qualities and so rather than you know trying to deal with those in a positive way they feel it's better to pick on and demean others. And, and I think, in my opinion, almost all bullies are extremely weak. And, and I don't mean weak physically necessarily, but I mean very weak-willed. And I'll call out anything that I see that's bullying in my mm-hmm. mind, and I try to deal with it face-to-face. And I also try not to, to demean them and make them feel bad because I don't want this to become a situation where, where like, like I'd rather have people just deal with it face-to-face and what I like, I talk to a lot of times I'll go and talk to school groups at other schools and, and people will have me come in and talk to seventh and eighth and ninth graders. And what I always say is if you see something like this happening in the playground, I, I, I think the worst thing to do is to kind of go tell a teacher. I think what you need to do as, as a group of kids is kind of just get together and go up to that person that's being rude or being mean or being a bully and say, listen, we're, we don't. We don't do that around here. That's not the type of people we are. So stop it. But don't like don't turn it around and try and hurt them. Just try and make them realize that that's not what we do. Yeah. And and, and accept them. Like say, okay, listen, you've made a mistake. Let's let's all you know. Let's all kind of move ahead and not dwell on the negative and and dwell on the mistake. But let's maybe hopefully move forward. And I, you know, a lot of times 
uh, I think people are just too quick to tattle or to rat people out or to report them and then let, let, let other people deal with it. And I think that's, in my opinion, it's a much healthier way because I think everyone makes mistakes. Everyone screws up, everyone messes up. And rather than kind of, you know, just, just kind of ignoring it, let's deal with it face to face. And then hopefully, you know, that person's going to realize, well, if that's not the way we behave around here, maybe I can be a little bit better. Yeah. I heard an interview with Maya Angelou and she talked about how she was hosting a party at her house and she heard from across the room someone telling a racist joke. And in that moment, she went over to the people and said, um, you know, you need to gather your things and you need to leave my house. And I think it was Oprah who was on the interview and Oprah said how impressed she was that, you know, she just went and said, we don't speak like that in my yep. home. Yep. And I thought, you know, how simple is that? Mm-hmm. That is so simple to just say, you know what? We don't tolerate that here. Yep. And and I thought that was really, really a good thing to do. So yep. what, what keeps you going, John? Like you are going and going and going like the Energizer Bunny this year. <laughs> what? And I know you've got a bigger mission too, but what what gets you up every day and, and gets you on the treadmill or outside and, and what keeps you going? Well, I think part of it, and, and my coach gets mad at me for this, but part of it is I've never been one to sleep a lot. And, and I, you know, he's convinced that if I sleep more, I'll probably be even more, like even faster. But I tend to, I tend to, most days I usually get about six, maybe six and a half hours sleep. And that's all I've ever been on my entire life. And so when my alarm goes off at four o'clock in the morning to go to the pool or get on my bike, I'm like out of bed right away. And I go downstairs and I have a coffee and I go. And I, I've never had trouble waking up in the morning. So I guess I'm, I'm glad to do that. But I think another part of me is absolutely paranoid that if I slow down or even stop for more than a couple of days, that my body will totally seize up. <laughs> and I think it's, all, are you serious? I, yes and no. Okay. I think yes, a little bit. But, I don't want to be laughing in case it's like a thing. <laughs> no, I, I, it's not. Like, it's kind of like the Tin Man. You know, I'm worried I'm going to rust. Okay, I, okay. I don't know. That's what but I, I took it as. <laughs> yeah, but I, I, I honestly think that that just part of me is worried that it's just better to keep going and keep doing something. And I do have rest days. Like there's days when I'll totally rest or maybe just do yoga, which I don't think is rest. I think yoga is good exercise mm-hmm. for my mind, and I and it's good exercise for just slowing down and and concentrating on balance and and stuff like that and I really enjoy that but I also there also be days when I don't do anything but I it's I don't and I try not to beat myself up if I miss a workout like it's not like oh I got to make that up you know it's like nope that workout's gone you missed it it's gone at the end of the day it is not going to make or break your entire season or even the race you have coming up just forget it and do what you can the next day but I just I guess part of me is you know, if, if if my mom were still alive, she probably would say, like, that's all John ever did was go, 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 go. And I think, you know, that's the way I was. I was like that Energizer bunny when I was a little <laughs> kid. I, my, my older sisters used to call me the Tasmanian devil. Oh, wow. Because I basically would just, I couldn't sit still. And that was, it's just what it, it's, so the fact that I found this in my life so late in life, I think is a blessing because I think if I'd found it earlier, I probably would have been exhausted by now. I don't know. (laughs) So as a parent of a teenager and a a teacher to teenagers, 
Um, I have a nine and 10 year old who are heading into the teen years. What's the best advice you have for parenting teenagers? Um, again, this, you know, I, I don't, I don't pretend to know everything ever. Cause you know, if you talk to some of my students, they'll say, you know, he's, he's the meanest guy in the world. Others will say he's extremely funny and whatever. I think with me, the most important thing is to, um, demand honesty from them. Mm. And I think that's, you know, I, I will admit my mistakes. And if I'm, if I do something with my son that I think is unfair, I will tell him like, listen, Owen, I really think that I wasn't fair with you and I really apologize. And I think being able to apologize, teaching them that apologies have to be heartfelt and not, you know, I'm saying sorry because I was told to. Mm. And I, and I'm noticing with him now, if he does something where he forgets something or he is really good at circling back and say, you know, dad, I'm really sorry for that. And, and I, you know, that part of it I think is extremely important and I, you know, I, I think the honesty and, and kind of respect and, and responsibility for your actions. And I, and I try to do that. Like I said, I try to do that as an adult. If I snip at him and I'm a little curt, I, I really kind of sit back and think, okay, was I really, was that really fair to do that to him? And I know some parents are like, you know, never admit defeat, never show your kid you're wrong. I, I, I don't believe that. I think they have to know that mistakes are made. And I, and I think because of that, he's a pretty honest kid. And, and, you know, that was one of the things that his elementary school teachers used to say, like, if he ever got in trouble, they would say, well, yeah, the thing is, like, he did hit that kid, but he was the first one to tell us he did it. Like, he'd say, yeah, I hit Billy. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> he, he never, on himself. <laughs> he would, yeah, he would never say that I didn't do that. Yeah. And dishonest. And, and I, I think we're very, we're blessed to have a kid that that's, that, that that's an important thing with him. My dad was always really good at apologizing to me as a kid, and and I took that to heart. I mean, it meant a lot to mm-hmm. hear that coming. You know, as a kid, you think you're being mistreated on, all the time and everything's yep. unfair, but to to have feel like, okay, dad is being unfair, and then to have him come to me, I, I agree with you. I think that's a really fantastic trait. So one more question, John. Um, sure. This podcast is called The Same 24 Hours, meaning we all have the same 24 hours in our day, but it's what we do with those 24 hours that leads to our greater health, happiness, and success. So what is one thing that you do on a daily basis that you can attribute to your current happiness and healthiness and pursuit of your goals? Like what's one thing you do in your 24 hours that makes your days great? I really try and spend time like reflecting and being thankful for Mm. what I have in life. And I really, I try not to take any of it for granted. And I try to like always realize that, that I'm blessed and it's, it's not a case of, Hey, at least I'm not that guy. Like I don't ever, (laughs) I don't ever try and kind of look at it that way. But I try and look at it kind of on its own and be thankful for what I have because I think feeling sorry for yourself is is an extremely kind of terrible place to be. And I'm thankful that I have had a mother that taught me, you know, there are a lot of blessings in life and you need to spend time like making sure that you're thankful for those and you're thankful for your friends and your family and, and, and everything else. And I try and spend a lot of time during my day realizing that and you know, as a case in point, I've been teaching for 28 years and I don't think I've had a day when I've got in my car and I'm on my way to work thinking, I don't want to go to work. And, wow. and so I think that part of has transferred into a lot of what I do. 
Well, I, for one, am grateful for you, and I'm thankful that you took this time to to talk with us. And um, so thank you, John, and I'll look forward to following your journey um, for your 12 marathons coming and up. We, and we will see each other in a few weeks in Boston. Oh, that's the, right. That's at at right. Trimania. Yes, yes. That is, um, let's, I wonder, I got to get this episode up before then. So that is, yeah, let's do a plug for that real quick. That is um, March 25th. Yep. Is that yep. right? March yes, 25th, Race Mania in Boston. And are you speaking? Yeah, I'm going to be speaking on a panel along with Karen Smyers. Okay. And, and actually, the, there's, there's, um, there are two other people. There's a moderator and, and another gentleman who's a Navy SEAL, ex-Navy SEAL. And basically, the topic of our, of our chat is mental toughness. Oh, that'll be a good one. I Very think we cool. I, I think we're on just a little bit before you. I think you're on like two little slots after us. Well, if I get like deer in the headlights, you can come rescue me. Absolutely. You'd be like, she looks terrified. Let's go sweep in. Bring the <laughs> Navy SEALs. <laughs> sure. <laughs> well, thank you, John. We'll talk soon. My pleasure.